1: I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm thrilled to have with me today Dr. Christina Miller, who is one of our neuroanesthesiologists here and the medical director for the Electroconvulsive Therapy Group in charge of doing anesthesia for ECTs. And so today, we're going to talk about anesthesia for electroconvulsive therapy. Also happy to say that this episode is going to be featured at anesthesiologynews.com. Frequent listeners will know that anesthesiologynews.com features a bunch of our episodes. You can check them out over there at anesthesiologynews.com, as well as a bunch of other great content that they have there. All right. Dr. Miller, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much.
1: So uh, we're going to talk, as I said, about uh, anesthesia for ECT, but let me start by asking you what – what is ECT? It's electroconvulsive therapy, but what does that mean and, and kind of where did it come from? What's the history of this thing?
2: Um, well, ECT is a controlled, generalized tonic-clonic seizure. Um, in modern times, we do this with the, uh, the aid of anesthesia. Um, in the past, in ancient times, um, physicians like Galen, Um, And Hippocrates noted that there were uh, improvements in psychiatric symptoms um, after patients had seizures that were related to other illnesses such as malaria. Um, And so this gave uh, the psychiatry community the idea that perhaps they could treat psychiatric illness. um, Primarily what we're treating is major depressive uh, disorder, um, but there are some other indications for ECT as well. Um, that you could treat this with uh, inducing a seizure. And in in the uh, 1930s, they would use um, medically induced seizures, things like uh, hypoglycemia from insulin um, or other other, uh, uncommon medications that we don't see today. Um, But in the 1930s, they began using uh, electricity to stimulate seizures. And initially, this was done um, without any sort of medical um, adjunct, no sedation or anything like that. seizures, the, the seizure process isn't painful, but unfortunately there were significant complications associated with it. So when you have an unregulated generalized tonic-clonic seizure, you're at risk for things like uh, shoulder dislocations, injury to the teeth, lips, gums, um, a lot of lumbar compression fractures because the, the back muscles are much stronger than the abdominal muscles. And um, there's this sort of phenomenon where the patients would arch backwards and have, have injuries secondary to that. Mm. Um, so uh, in the 1940s, when Curare became available as a long-acting muscle relaxant, um, there was some experimentation with, with using that to blunt some of the motor uh, response um, with the thinking that you could um, attenuate skeletal muscle contractions but still maintain uh, spontaneous respiration. And because this is a long-acting drug, as we know, there were um, more respiratory complications as a result of that. Um, in the 1950s, when succinylcholine became develop, uh, became available, um, this was uh, um, a much shorter-acting muscle relaxant, and so the, the respiratory depression uh was was much shorter lived and patients didn't have as many complications but there was a lot of anxiety um around the this feeling of suddenly having um a, a rapid profound paralysis um and not being able to breathe or talk and so as one of the psychiatrists max fink said um you know we didn't really want anesthesia specifically for ect but we needed anesthesia so that people would not recall the experience of paralysis with succinylcholine mm. Unfortunately, most of the medications that we use in our anesthetic armamentarium tend to raise the seizure threshold, and that makes it more difficult to have an effective treatment. And so, um, this is a very interesting area of anesthesia practice for me because it requires a lot of manipulation of um, the the pharmacology that we give in order to still achieve a good treatment. And there are a lot of physiologic effects as well. Um, I feel like it's one of the the uh, an area where we have a direct impact the anesthetic technique and the medications that we choose the doses that we give and the uh, the effectiveness of our ventilation has a direct impact on patient outcomes
1: yeah it's really interesting I was telling you before we started recording that I um, remember very well as a resident really enjoying the experience in in my ECT rotation and feeling like uh, there's a lot to learn and it's very different from what you do uh, in other rotations so I think that's fantastic So you had mentioned before that one of the indications for ECT is depression. Um, Tell me a little more about about that and then if there are any other indications.
2: Yeah, um, ECT sort of fell out of favor in the uh, 1960s and 70s because there were a lot of very effective antidepressant drugs that were developed. Um, But not all um, depression is uh, responsive to to medication, and many of the patients that we see have profound refractory depression. Um, and have tried multiple agents, multiple types of therapy, um, and this is one of the only treatments that they respond to. Um, so there's been a resurgence recently um, in the last couple of decades, um, though there's still a, a huge amount of stigma and controversy surrounding ECT, which is, um, which is steeped in myth and um, not really supported by the evidence that ECT is a very, very effective treatment for many of our patients.
1: Great. So, um, certainly depression, as you said, um, and maybe severe depression.
2: Yeah, depression. So there's unipolar depression where patients just have depressive symptoms. There's bipolar depression where um, patients have depressive symptoms, but also manic symptoms. Mm -hmm. Um, There are elements of depression that have some psychotic features that can be helped uh, by ECT. Um, And we also treat a a fair number of patients um, who have catatonia. So um, this is sometimes related to depression, sometimes not, but um, where everything just becomes so profoundly depressed and slowed uh, movements, uh, oral intake. Um, patients become almost almost stuck and. Um the, the first-line treatment for that is benzodiazepines. And many people respond well to that, and that's the only treatment that they need. But in some cases, they may respond briefly or just partially. And then that suggests um, that they may respond to ECT. So uh, we've had um, quite a number of patients that I've seen over the years who've had a really dramatic response um, after getting ECT uh, for catatonia. And this suggests that, you know, there's a GABAergic sort of mechanism that's behind, um, the, the, uh, effectiveness of ECT.
1: Interesting. Okay. And so, um, depression and then this kind of severe form, which is catatonia, and then are there other um, kind of psychiatric diseases that it works for?
2: Yeah, there, um, there are some, uh, I would say, a very, very small percentage of the patients that we see um, sometimes have issues with um, eating disorders. Uh, I've, we've treated a patient with um, profound obsessive-compulsive disease, um, a patient who had really uh, terrible refractory Tourette's that was helped by ECT. And then there is a small group of patients, um, generally pediatric patients, with autism that's so severe um, that they have a, a lot of uh, self-injurious behaviors. and. And are at risk for harming themselves and potentially others as they as they grow older. Um, And we have we have a small group of maintenance uh, patients who um, patients who receive maintenance ECT on a regular basis, and it it really um, helps them be able to integrate well with their families and with their community. And without this treatment, um, their behavioral issues would be so profound that none of this would be possible.
1: Really interesting. I wasn't aware of those other uh, those other indications, but that's really interesting. So, what's a usual course of treatment? If I remember right, it's not just one time, right?
2: Sometimes people feel better um, after a single treatment, and that's a that's a wonderful um, suggestion that they're going to improve with ECT. Um, but typically, if patients have um, acute uh, an acute course of ECT for depression, we. We average around 6 to 12 treatments. And um, every, every uh, institution is different, but here we do ECT three times a week on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And um, so over the course of several weeks, patients usually uh, usually recover. Um, and they may feel better after the you know first treatment, or it may take several treatments until they start to notice a difference. Um, there are patients who have much more refractory disease, and they require a much longer treatment course. And then, in addition to that acute course, there are um, there are applications for ECT to be used for maintenance, um, and this um, you know maybe every every month, every two weeks, something like that, or perhaps just when they see their outpatient psychiatrist and begin feeling like their mood is beginning to slip, and mm-hmm. they need um, they need uh, um, something added to their uh, to their treatment uh, regimen. Um, and this, for many people, this um, can be very helpful in keeping them out of the hospital as an inpatient, um, and, and some, people have ins- some patients have insight into when this is happening, and they actually seek extra treatments out, and um, f- for other patients, they have less insight into their illness. Depression is, is very um, complicated in that way in that it's uh, sort of a gradual erosion of um, your, your insight into your own problems, and, and so they may be um, referred back to us by their outpatient provider.
1: Okay. So let's turn to the kind of anesthetic preparation. If you are knowing that you're going to be doing a day of ECTs, you're going to obviously want to think about your preoperative planning for your patients. What do you think about in terms of preoperative concerns?
2: Well, um, the the procedure itself, uh, what it involves is that we typically induce with, a um, with a, uh, hypnotic agent, a short acting medication called methohexatol followed by, um, a short acting medication or short, short acting muscle relaxant succinylcholine. And at that point, then, um, once the patient is, um, Anesthetized and then relaxed, we begin to hyperventilate them um, for several minutes until we trigger the the seizure with an electrical stimulus. When the seizure is triggered, we see profound um, stimulation of the autonomic nervous system. Um, as well as, you know, all, all other parts of the brain, but the motor activity is attenuated by the succinylcholine. And so my primary concern is how the patient is going to respond to these autonomic changes. Typically, what we see first is a parasympathetic response. And so um, we get bradycardia, sometimes, sometimes a systolic pause um, and, you know, a brief slowing of the heart rate. And then um, you can see increased secretions, you can see bronchospasm, um, and that is a, a pretty brief response and followed closely by a profound sympathetic response. And so in patients with cardiac disease, uh, pulmonary disease, um, you know, we, we become more concerned about this profound hypertension and tachycardia. Um, so um, by systems, the things that I'm thinking about um, from, a, from a neurologic standpoint, I look at whether or not they have um, an underlying issue with uh, seizure disorder to begin with, um, things that would, would make them respond in an um, uh, unusual way to ECT if they have a, a focus for epilepsy already, if there's um, any sort of organic findings in the brain. Uh, brain tumors um, and brain aneurysms are particularly concerning because um, you know we are going to put a lot of sheer stress on that aneurysm with um, with the uh, the sympathetic response um, so we look at that first and then we also look at what um, what psychiatric medications there are uh, they are on um, there are things that you know anticonvulsants um, clearly are going to going to inhibit a good treatment and we need to taper those or hold those before before treatment but even things like um, perhaps if they're using Tegretol for facial pain or something like that, you know, things that have some anticonvulsant properties, mm-hmm. we would, we would want to be aware of that.
1: Tegretol is carbamazepine? Yes. Okay.
2: Um, um, certainly, history of stroke um, is concerning, and, and puts ECT could put patients at um, increased risk for complications from that. Um, we don't have very good data to determine uh, how soon after an ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke we can treat patients. Um, typically, with an elective procedure, we might wait up to nine months after an ischemic stroke, but there's there's uh, usually more urgency associated with the the indication for ECT um, in terms of patients' quality of life and and uh, perhaps even um, risk for suicidality um, so in a conservative case um, you would wait you would wait nine months but most usually we wait about three months after after um, uh, ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke, but there 's not a lot of Uh, Good literature to guide us on this.
1: And is there anything you do differently if someone has, let's say, three or four months ago, they had a stroke? Would you? Sort of do anything differently to more tightly control the blood pressure.
2: Yeah, we do. We do um, blunt heart rate and blood pressure response with a variety of short-acting medications. Um, typically, we use esmolol, nitroglycerin, um, and if they have more sustained uh, sympathetic response, maybe labetalol. Um, so we there for sicker patients. There's certainly an attempt to more tightly control those parameters um, with short-acting, easily titratable medications. Um, but the the risk is is still there, and, and the the, um, the sympathetic response is is very profound and uh, refractory to treatment. Okay. In some cases, um, that being said, that that sort of leads me to my next point about a cardiac disease. Um, we need to make sure patients are able to withstand a a, a profound sympathetic discharge, um, and so. Uh, patients who have um, coronary disease, myocardial ischemia, um, valvular heart disease, uh, where any you know, profound increase in, in afterload or heart rate would be concerning, um, those, are, those are patients that we want to optimize beforehand. Um, we also sometimes have patients with uh, pacemakers um, or AICDs, uh, with pacemakers, the concern is that the, the repeated electrical stimulation may have an impact on battery life. Okay. And so what we typically recommend for that is interrogation before the course of ECT and then after the course of ECT to make sure that the battery life is sufficient.
1: So not after each one, but not after
2: after they've finished their course. Yeah, gotcha. um, With AICDs, there's a very, very small risk um, that the electrical stimulus could be interpreted as an arrhythmia um, and cause the AICD to fire inappropriately, though there's very little evidence to show that that ever happens. Um, our sort of conservative approach with that is to turn the turn the AICD off for each treatment and then have it turned back on after after recovery is complete.
1: All right, so that's all really important to know. And then um, let's see, other organisms, how about the pulmonary system? Anything there?
2: Right. So we're going to be um, doing quite a lot of hyperventilation. And why is um, that why do you patients? So what when we um as I mentioned before, um, a lot of the medications that we use to provide anesthesia raise this, the seizure threshold. And uh, one way that we can compensate for that is, um, to hyperventilate patients. So we, we blow off the CO2, we increase the pH in the brain and everything is a little bit more irritable. And when we hit it with electricity, you get a, you get, um, everything's a little bit off kilter and you get a much better response. Okay. Um, the other thing that we try and do it particularly, particularly in patients where we're having, um, a, difficult time achieving a good treatment is that we are actually waiting almost for the emergence, sort of the equivalent of phase two, um, phase where the patient is, is emerging from anesthesia and entering that sort of excitement phase, not yet conscious. But again, we see this, um, certainly in other areas of anesthesia where you have that in between unconscious and awake phase and, and things are, um, things like bronchospasm or um you know airway reactivity are more prone to happen and so everything's just a little unbalanced and when we we hit the brain with electricity we get a better result
1: so you want to be kind of cognizant that all of that is potentially going to happen and be ready for it that's right that's right how about it from a gi perspective um Are these patients going to be full stomachs, prone to vomiting?
2: All of these patients are um, fasted beforehand. Um, What we are typically doing is mask ventilating without a secure airway. Um, We we do ventilate patients in a semi-upright position with the head of the bed elevated. Um, We typically use oral airways um, to try and, uh, you know, increase the effectiveness of ventilation, but also potentially decrease uh, stomach insufflation. It's rare that we have patients um, who um, have severe full stomach precautions where we would Um, where we would not be able to do this under mask ventilation. Um, But certainly we want patients to be fasted, patients who have gastroparesis, patients who may have ascites from liver disease um, or or other reasons for uh, delayed gastric emptying are of concern. Um, We have done anesthesia in uh, patients who are pregnant. And, um, typically we'll do uh, mask, mask, uh, ventilation up to through the end of the second trimester, but not in the third trimester that, um, presents too, too much of a risk.
1: Okay. Are there absolute contraindications to doing ECT?
2: I would say that the, um, they're limited. There are many relative contraindications. Um, active, untreated pheochromocytoma would be certainly something that we, we, wouldn't, um, we wouldn't want to provide ECT in that context. Um, and then, as we discussed recent MI, recent stroke, um, the, the risk-benefit analysis with ECT is always very interesting um, because these patients... Uh, are profoundly, typically profoundly depressed, maybe suicidal, um, and if they are not able to get effective treatment, their quality of life is very poor and their potential for death is very, very high, either yep. by their own hand or because they're not able to effectively... Manage their um, their medical comorbidities uh-huh. in an organized way, um, so that very high stakes environment has to be weighed against whatever um, risk the anesthesia and the ECT itself present, um, and we have you know long long uh, you know detailed conversations with families about what we can do to modify risk, um, but not eliminate it completely. Um, and many patients, even even with um, significant comorbidities, choose to go ahead and are treated safely despite the fact that, um, that, that medically they have a lot of concerning issues.
1: Sounds good. How about relative contraindications, things just to kind of keep in mind but that don't necessarily rule it out?
2: Um, well, uh, coronary disease, um, COPD is another, um, uh, you know, Profound um, lung lung issues. We have to be careful. We, were, we spoke earlier about uh, pulmonary disease. Um, patients who have um, a lot of uh, uh, emphysematous changes and may have blebs. We have to be careful with airway pressures and that that sort of thing. Um, we have treated patients who have um, head and neck cancer who are have ongoing concurrent radiation treatment. Um, so. There are always there are many things that we need to be um, cognizant of: uh, cardiac, pulmonary, um, neurologic disease uh, that that increase risk, but um, typically can be optimized and, and overcome.
1: Okay. And so, what are your anesthetic goals when you are getting ready to do an ECT?
2: Well, this is a very quick procedure, um, and we do many of them in the course of a day. Um, so we, we want to provide uh, rapid unconsciousness um, and muscle relaxation for the, for the stimulus itself. Um, we want to provide hemodynamic stability, um, which is in the face of our anesthetic drugs, but more importantly, in the face of these autonomic, um, the, the stimulation of the autonomic nervous system with ECT, um, and then we want to provide a fast, um, fast recovery and get patients awake and able to breathe on their own um, and hemodynamically stable after the treatment. Um so all of that is um sort of the, the the anesthetic part of the goal, which is not um unusual to other parts other um areas of anesthesia care. Um but in this instance, as I've alluded to many times already, the, the um the issue is that most of our anesthetic agents depress uh seizure activity, and that's not desirable in this case. And so um, we use certain combinations of medications in certain doses, and we augment with hyperventilation um, in order to, to overcome that effect.
1: Great. And I want to ask you about the uh, typical drugs in dosing, but I have one question, which is that I remember we used to put a tourniquet around one leg, and so the succinylcholine didn't get to that leg, and you could see the seizure. Is that typical? Is that what, was that always done?
2: So um, that's we've that was definitely... Uh, um, common practice in the past. We have a uh, very um, rudimentary EEG that has two leads, um, and so um, we can determine seizure activity from that, even if... even if uh, there is no motor manifestations because of the succinylcholine, um, every once in a while the blood pressure cuff inflates at just the right time, and we see that the that that uh, hand or that limb um, moves more than more than the rest of the gotcha. rest of the body. Um, they also inflated the tourniquet. Um, I think in. One of the other reasons we did that was a concern for awareness, so that even if the patient were were relaxed, that with one one hand or one foot they could still indicate some sort of responsiveness. And um, awareness is is a is a big concern. Um, we do our best to um, to minimize that that as much as we can, but um, we are always trying to provide the lightest anesthetic possible right. so that they don't have recall of the experience, but also that we're facilitating a good seizure and actually um, contributing to their improvement. Absolutely.
1: All right. So let's say someone comes first time. They've never had an ECT before, so you don't have a prior anesthetic to go by. Right. What's your go-to? What are you going to use for them?
2: So our um, our initial drug that we use for for hypnosis is methohexatol, and that's a short-acting barbiturate. And um, it is dosed by weight, um, I would say, one to one and a half per kilo. And this is dependent on lean body mass. And sometimes I make alterations up or down depending on the patient's age. Um, and that's pretty rapidly acting. Um, once I've confirmed that they're unconscious with that, then we give succinylcholine. Again, one to one and a half per kilo. Um, and after that, uh, we, we begin our hyperventilation and, and do, uh, do the ECT treatment. For many patients, um, they may have uh, methohexatol or brevitol and succinylcholine as the only uh, induction drugs um, throughout the course of their treatment. Um, But for some patients, um, repeated... Stimulus with ECT raises the seizure threshold, makes it more difficult for them to seize, and then we have to make manipulations in the doses of those drugs. So if possible, we can titrate down the, the Brevitol dose, um, but when we sort of meet the, um, come up against the risk of uh, inadequate uh, loss of consciousness, then we have to find another way to, um, to augment their, their anesthetic dose. And here, what we, we use is remifentanil. Um, so you, typically that can be given, um, up front uh, is part of the induction process. And then once that sort of reaches its peak effect, um, we can give a much smaller dose of the brevitol, even even an excitatory dose of the brevitol. Um, and together in combination, the remifentanil plus the uh help us achieve unconsciousness. But with a much lower dose of a medication that suppresses seizure activity.
1: Interesting. So, what is an excitatory dose? That's just a smaller dose of, of methohexital that actually can paradoxically.
2: Paradoxically, yeah. In um, in smaller doses, methohexital can paradoxically uh, increase lower. Uh, lower the seizure threshold okay. or, or increase the ability to seize. Mm, yeah.
1: Interesting. Okay, and then remifentanil, of course. Being so short-acting is nice. It's not going to cause post-operative respiratory depression.
2: It it doesn't cause long-term post-op respiratory depression. We do use it in uh, large doses, and the things that we are looking out for are Bradycardia, hypotension, chest wall rigidity, yeah. which can be profound, because this is a this is a um, an arena where we're using very high bolus doses of remifentanil, 200, 400, um, sometimes 1,000 mics at a time um, on, on the, in the upper limit, um, in order to uh, achieve our goal, and. Um, even though it is a short-acting drug, very, very large boluses can still have a, a longer effect sure. than you might expect. So um, those patients that we treat with remifentanil, especially for the first time, we watch a little bit longer um, in, the, in the procedure room in terms of uh, their, their respiratory drive and um, their recovery from respiratory depression from that.
1: Now, if you see the chest wall rigidity, you're going to be fine while your succinyl on board, but is it possible that when your succinylcholine wears off, you might still be unable to ventilate?
2: I haven't seen that before. Okay. Um, we... we um- we see chest wall rigidity up front, and then we see a profound difference once the succinylcholine takes effect. Okay. Um, but uh, we haven't had issues with, with prolonged chest wall rigidity that, okay. I, that I'm aware of.
1: Good. So the issue would be just realizing that if you're not ventilating, you've you got to get that succinylcholine in and, right. and that will help. All right.
2: Right. Timing is – everything happens within a few minutes, right. but just a matter of a few seconds here or there – uh, Timing-wise, can be can be uh, profound.
1: Absolutely. All right. So let's say there are obviously other drugs. What would make you uh, say, all right? Well, actually, I'm not going to do methylhexatol in this patient. I'm going to use something else. Or what other drugs might you consider, and why?
2: Um, so historically, um, other things that have been used have been things like thiopentol, um etomidate, ketamine, propofol. Um, All of these have a less favorable um, profile when it comes to uh, their impact on seizure threshold, seizure duration, and also um, hemodynamic stability. Um, In rare cases, I think the only contraindication I can think of um, is porphyria for thiopental, excuse me, for methohexatol. Okay. Um, or allergy though. I can't say I've ever seen that. And, uh, for a patient that we had who had prophyria, we did use low dose propofol and many places do use low dose propofol. Um, and if titrated appropriately, you can, you can still, um, you can still have adequate treatments, but in, we tend to see a lot of patients who have more refractory depression and potentially are referred from other places. And we are, um, we're treating some of the more difficult cases, and we find that methohexatol gives us an advantage over propofol.
1: Great. So propofol could be used if needed under those circumstances.
2: Yeah, etomidate,
1: um, you mentioned, uh, has been used in the past, obviously has the adrenal suppressive side effect. Um, is there any time where you might opt to, to choose etomidate, uh, where you might prefer that? Is there any advantage?
2: Um, it. Because of its hemodynamic stability, um, if you had patients, I suppose, who are, who are prone to hypotension, it might be desirable. Mm-hmm. Um, the issue is that when you get that sympathetic stimulation afterwards, now you are starting with a higher blood pressure, and sometimes right. you can see more, uh, a more exacerbated sympathetic effect afterwards.
1: So I imagine ketamine probably has similar potential to uh, cause almost an increase in blood pressure or at least not to attenuate the sympathetic response as much. Uh, are there other disadvantages to ketamine for these procedures?
2: Well, ketamine can uh, contribute to increased delirium after the after the seizure, um, definitely increase blood pressure uh, and heart rate uh, that is exacerbated by the sympathetic stimulation um, and may increase ICP um, ketamine is an is an interesting um, medication that we 're exploring for many uses for for depression um, and There are patients who who respond to ketamine infusions, though um, some of that effect is short-lived. And, in fact, the FDA is uh, about to approve intranasal ketamine ketamine, um, as as a treatment for depression, which Mm. is going to make it uh, much more widely available and uh, not dependent on IV infusion. So it will be interesting to see what happens with that and uh, how that that impacts the overall depression. Overall treatment of depression.
1: Interesting. Okay. And then, you know, I would imagine in the past you really probably tried to stay away from rock as a muscle relaxant because of how long it would last, even a while before you could even reverse. Uh, now, with the advent of Sugamidex in the United States, are you using rock uranium for some patients?
2: We're typically using succinylcholine unless there's a contraindication um, because it it works well and it's easily titratable. Um, In rare circumstances, if we have patients uh, with an allergy, um, with hyperkalemia, um, and one patient that I can think of in the recent past who had a pseudocholinesterase deficiency, which was actually unmasked uh, during her first ECT treatment... um, in, in those cases, we would use rocuronium, and it is uh, a very nice um, advantage to have Sugamidex now as a reversal agent. Um, in the past, it was difficult to time the, the relaxation such as, that the patient was relaxed during the procedure, but not profoundly relaxed afterwards, that they were still reversible. Um, and as... Um, as you know, with uh, glycopyrrolate and neostigmine, we're having an enormous impact on an already, an already dysregulated autonomic system as a result of the, the ECT stimulus. Um, so that becomes a little bit dif- more difficult to judge. How much glycopyrrolate do you give in order to have um, a, a desirable heart rate without having a lot of the parasympathetic side effects, undesirable parasympathetic side effects um, from, from the neostigmine?
1: Absolutely. All right. And then in terms of like other adjunct drugs, you mentioned that sometimes for blood pressure control, especially in people you really don't want them to get uh, hypertensive, you might use nitroglycerin. For people, you really want to control that heart rate and not have them get very tachycardic esmolol or even labetalol if you need some longer acting action. Are there other things that you sometimes use as adjuncts?
2: Yes. Um... We certainly for post operative concerns, um, post ECT concerns, things like nausea, muscle aches, myalgias are, are common, and we use Zofran, we use Toradol, um, we use an, a var- variety of other antiemetics, um, just as you would in any other uh, sort of PACU situation. Um, we do have a number of patients, this is uh, going back to our, our conversation on catatonia, which is treated effectively with benzodiazepines. We have patients who come in who are on benzodiazepines chronically, um, and uh, we need to reverse those before we can, um, before we can do the ECT treatment. So um, flumazenil is another common medication that we use in ECT that's not not widely used in other anesthesia practice. Um, to reverse the benzodiazepine effect prior to initiating the treatment. And then um, we do use benzodiazepines after the treatment for a variety of reasons, either to redose a patient who's on chronic benzos or um, to uh, treat post-ictal uh, delirium and agitation, which is, is quite common. Um, right. And so, uh, so that's another, another common medication that, that we use.
1: Great. Now, you mentioned that almost all these patients are getting just mask ventilated during the procedure. Uh, are there any, any other options? Are you, you, I guess you said someone who has an unavoidable full stomach you might actually intubate. Any times you use an LMA or anything else?
2: Um, if if they have a difficult airway, we were having difficulty mask effectively mask ventilating them. It's possible that we would use an LMA um, because you can you can sort of seat that over the glottis and, and ventilate more effectively. Um, typically, we we don't need to do that. Um, and then in rare circumstances, there's a, a genuine concern about a full stomach and an aspiration risk.
1: Okay. Now, how about the seizure itself? Uh, that's induced with electricity, as you said. Uh, anything to keep in mind about that?
2: Um, so the typical treatment that we start with is uh, right unilateral stimulation. So that's a, the right temporal and then above at the, at the top of the, the occiput. Um, and what that helps us do is avoid stimulating the the language areas. Um, patients who get uh, left unilateral or bilateral ECT are... Um, uh, much more prone to having a lot more delirium, confusion, um, uh, word-finding difficulty, memory loss afterwards. If patients are not um, responding to the right unilateral treatments, then in some cases we do, u- we do move to uh, bilateral CT. so it would be bitemporal uh, stimulation. Um, and so once the stimulus um, is administered, there's a, a small latent phase, and then there's a Um, a tonic phase, a short tonic phase, and then we see a clonic phase to the seizure. And our goal with the succinylcholine is to attenuate motor activity um, enough so that we're preventing injury and complications, but that we can still see a little bit of the underlying motor manifestation. Um, to judge uh, length of seizure, in addition to using that EEG. Mm-hmm. Um, if the patient, so in some cases, uh, if the patients have very high seizure thresholds, um, they may have short seizures. Uh, in order for an adequate treatment um, to to occur, we need the seizure typically to be greater than 30 seconds. That's our goal. And if it's less than 20 seconds, um, we may restimulate a second time. On the other hand, um, if they have very long seizures and we're approaching three minutes and the seizure is not uh, self-limited, which it typically is, uh, in that case, we would stop that pharmacologically with uh, midazolam, some other benzodiazepine, propofol would be appropriate, a small bolus of that. And that's typically, um, typically effective. Uh, the risk with, uh, with very long seizures is that patients can, uh, develop status epilepticus. And I have seen that once that was required, um, uh, multiple, multiple anti, uh, convulsant agents in the, in the neurocritical care unit before we resolved that issue. But that's not typical. And that patient, um, did have uh, an organic focus for seizure activity as well.
1: Okay, and then once the seizure is over, what does the recovery look like?
2: Um, so after um, the seizure is over, they their patients are typically still a little bit um, uh, weak from the succinylcholine, and so we need to support their airway and support their breathing primarily. Um, we also treat uh, hemodynamic perturbations, the blood the heart rate and uh, tachycardia and, and hypertension that we've mentioned um and we um in typically in a few minutes can can get those those parameters um controlled and either either with medication or they're just sort of self-limited um uh, perturbations that that resolve on their own um, we support their airway until they're breathing well and protecting, protecting their airway and uh, ventilating well on their own. And then, uh, typically, they can go to the recovery room at that point. Um, but in some cases, we do have to be cognizant of uh, post-op agitation and post-op delirium. And patients who've had longer seizures um, are at higher risk for that. Patients with polysubstance abuse, certainly that, that increases their risk. Um, uh, concurrent use of lithium... Is also a risk factor for that. Um, so sometimes you can uh, meet a patient and understand that they fit a profile for that, and and may require some prophylactic um, sedation after the after the uh, seizure is over. With typically benzodiazepines, midazolam or lorazepam, if if you need something a little bit longer acting. Um, but sometimes that's a that postictal education can be can be a surprise. So we're we're always. Uh, um, vigilant for that. And um, certainly history of post agitation increases the, the risk that it'll, it will occur again.
1: Okay. So you've mentioned delirium, post agitation, kind of some of the other usual side effects of any procedure like post-op nausea and vomiting, um, need for airway support. Are there other complications unique to ECTs that we should keep in mind?
2: Well, um, we're using the succinylcholine to blunt um, things like myalgias and and um, some musculoskeletal issues, um, but that those those are are certainly of concern if the succinylcholine dose is, is inadequate or if the patient is very frail. Um, when we stimulate, uh, we're stimulating close to the masseter muscle, and there's a um, a pretty strong. Uh, Reaction where the jaw clenches, um, and so we do use a a, um, a bite block, a soft rubber bite block that fits between the teeth, and that's in an uh, attempt to protect the patient from tongue laceration, dental injury, injury to the soft tissue and lips. But that can be hap- that that can also happen. And
1: just to be clear, the reason that they do that, even though they have succinylcholine on board, is because the electricity is directly stimulating that muscle.
2: That's correct. Okay. Yeah.
1: Uh, okay, so that's obviously those things are important to keep in mind. Um, we already talked about the hemodynamic potential side effects, things like tachycardia and hypertension, especially important in people who are uh, at risk for myocardial ischemia. Um, you mentioned that the initial parasympathetic phase can cause increased secretions, which I imagine puts people at risk for laryngospasm.
2: That's correct. That's correct. Um, so uh, increased secretions, we, we can see laryngospasm from time to time and exacerbation of bronchospasm and wheezing afterwards. Um, and... That's uh, on, on the sort of uh, the parasympathetic side of the the equation, and then um, in terms of sympathetic, prolonged sympathetic side effects, we do typically um, see uh, hypertension and tachycardia. But there can also be issues with arrhythmias. Mm-hmm. Um, a few patients that um, that have had complications with myocardial ischemia or uh, new onset of atrial fibrillation as a result of ECT. Um, so we're we're really kind of stirring everything up, and um, some people have a, a tendency towards parasympathetic complications, others towards towards sympathetic complications.
1: Okay, and then you mentioned before awareness that that's a, a risk and a worry. Um, what is that common?
2: Um, I. Th- think it's more more common than we think it is uh, in ECT. It's probably underreported. Um, when I have um, patients who have concerns with awareness, um, I, have, I always uh, go and follow up and, and, and talk to them about their experience and um, because they have concurrent psychiatric illness, sometimes it can be difficult to tease out awareness from maybe another experience that they've had where um, they recall waking up or they recall uh, moments before they went off to sleep and are conflating those things.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, or there are some patients who just have frank psychotic uh, psychotic features as elements of their depression and, and um the the situation that they experience has uh, very little to do with what actually happened during the procedure. Um, but in the um, in the uh, event that it is it, um, does genuinely seem like they had recall about something that happened during the procedure, um, that could happen because. Um, they were received muscle relaxant before they were in, they were completely anesthetized. Um, it could also happen because they were beginning to emerge um, before the before the seizure, then re-induced uh, unconsciousness. Um, and we're always uh, doing our best to facilitate a good uh, seizure and a good treatment. So we are um, we are um, very carefully titrating those medications for just the minimal depth of anesthesia that we need um, for this for this type of procedure. Um, so while awareness under general anesthesia is rare, um, and ECT is not viewed as one of the, the major contributors to this incidence, um, it is something that we see from time to time and take very seriously. And um, involve, when it does happen, involves quite a lot of patient reassurance and then uh, reevaluation of the medication doses and, and um, the risk-benefit for them continuing ECT if this has the potential to happen again.
1: Great. So Say a little about, um, you've made this a, a focus of your clinical practice. What What is it about it that you find really interesting and, and kind of has made you want to focus on this?
2: Um, I find it interesting that every single time the recipe is different mm-hmm. um, or could be different. Um, each patient has their own, um, you know, sort of unique uh, Background in terms of the the psychiatric medications there are, the, where they are at their stage in their depression, if they're um, if they're very depressed or if they're starting to get better, um, and all of these contribute to their level of consciousness and how responsive they are to the anesthetic drugs that we give. Um, It involves a direct conversation between the anesthesia provider and the psychiatrist about how they're doing clinically, what their seizure course has looked like, and what we need to do to optimize um, their treatment. And that comes from um, the choice and dose of anesthetic medications as well as the extent of hyperventilation, when to stimulate. And so that's um, always an interesting uh, um, sort of conversation, especially with patients who... um, where it's a little bit more difficult to achieve a good um, a good uh, response um, easily with the typical medications and typical doses. Um, and beyond that, it's a it's a very collegial environment. We have a great relationship with the um, the psychiatric nursing staff and the psychiatry staff. Um, we get a lot of very interesting medical consults um, as well. And um, trying to figure out the um, appropriate um, course of action for each patient and how we're going to optimize, um, some patients who have significant comorbidities, um, medical comorbidities, in addition to their psychiatric issues, um, and, and, optimize them for treatment, but get them through their, their acute course of depression and get them feeling better is, uh, is challenging, but rewarding.
1: Sounds really interesting. Uh, anything else you think we should touch on before we sign off?
2: I think that's about it.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: All right. Thanks so much to Dr. Miller. I thought that was really interesting. Took me back. I haven't done ECT in a long time, but go to the website acrac.com and let us know what you thought. You can leave a comment. Everyone else can learn from what you have to say. What is your approach to anesthesia for ECT? Let us know. If you're a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. And if you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash acrac, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash a-c-c-r-a-c, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. If you prefer to make pledges when and where and how you most desire, whenever you want, then uh, you can instead go to paypal.me slash ACRAC. That's paypal.me slash A-C-C-R-A-C. And you can make a donation now, later, anytime you want. Either way, we are really appreciative. Thank you so much to those of you who have already made donations. And of course, big thanks to Brian Park for the outlines that he does. You'll see popping up on some of the episodes. All right. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Christina Miller, I'm Jed Walpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.